the Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the Physician's Lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Welcome to the podcast. This week we have a four-part podcast because of the importance of the subject that we're discussing. Part one will be the interview with Dr. Leah Gagino from Kalamazoo, Michigan, who is an expert in mental health in the pediatric office, suicide screening and prevention in children. This will be followed by a panel of expert pediatricians who discuss how they're doing mental health in their offices across the U.S. A second interview with Dr. Gagino about suicide prevention and suicide awareness and screening in the pediatric office, and a fourth episode, which will have the panel and what we're doing across the U.S. to prevent the number two cause of death in young Americans. Thank you for listening. Well, welcome, everyone. This is an episode of the Pediatric Lounge is being taped live, and before we get started, I want to thank a few people. First of all, I'd like to thank Ari for adjuvant.health, who has coordinated this event and is behind the scenes and makes this a success. Second, and equally, Dr. Carey, the CEO of the Allied Physicians Group in Long Island, who has been kind enough to lend us her net network and IT specialists to make this a reality. Then my good partner, Dr. George Rogo from RBK Pediatrics, and the audience that I think is listening to us, not only in the United States, but in Costa Rica, Colombia, Lima, and Spain. And then let me introduce to you our guest, who is one of my mentors, a dear friend of mine, who I've known for more than three decades. She was my t- attending at Michigan State University. Her CV is long, too long for me to go into details, but I will tell you that she was an excellent community pediatrician for over 30 years at Rambling Road Pediatrics, so much so that those of you young in the audience will not know, but she used to send the patients with their spinal fluid and their urine in a paper bag for us residents to do the workup. She then went on to lead the health system in Bronson Methodist Hospitals, a children's hospital in Southwest. It is a community-based program, but it serves all of Southwest Michigan, a lot of rural communities without pediatricians, and all the kids come to Kalamazoo for both community care and tertiary care. Then she went on to lead in the AAP, not only as the former president of the AAP Michigan chapter, but she's now the board member at the AAP board. In addition to that, her life passion has been mental health, incorporating mental health into the community pediatric office, suicide prevention, and she's a national expert on that topic. But what is most dear to me about Dr. Gugino, or Leah, is the way she takes care of her families, and I ta- she taught us to take care of the families we take care of. She is like thousands and thousands of pediatricians in America every day doing the best job they can for the kids of America so that we have a future. And in particular, 
I'm personally dedicating this episode to Jimmy Flynn. Jimmy Flynn was our kid as we were all residents in Old John Street, and I hope Tom and Gail are listening, as Tom is a pediatric infectious disease specialist, and Leah was a pediatrician, and she helped us all take care of Jimmy. She helped us at the end when we had nothing more to offer Jimmy, and we had to let him go. And the lessons that Leah taught us as human beings, as pediatricians, as parents and uncles of Jimmy, are forever in my heart, and I have a debt of gratitude for Leah, and Tom and Gail are my heroes on forever. I want to show you a picture of Jimmy, because I keep it in my heart, and this is where we used to live when we were interns. So, to Jimmy. Leah, welcome to the show. I didn't know that you were going to make me almost start crying, bring that in. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you for so many kind words. I think the debt of gratitude goes to Jimmy and to Gail and Tom, who taught me about how to love a child and to work tirelessly on their behalf. And, you know, I think the, the magic is in the room. It's with our kids. It's with our families. And that's why we do this work. And, and it's a joy. There are lots of sorrows along the way, but there are very few professions where we have the, this privilege of such intimate moments. So thank you. That was really a lovely introduction. Thank you. Why did you become a pediatrician? Well, I loved science and I had a fabulous teacher in Rochester, Michigan, Mrs. Tally, and I had a class in physiology and we spent a year dissecting a cat and learning about organ systems. And I loved it. I was fascinated mostly with, I think the kidney, the renal system. i grab my attention. And I, so I thought I wanted to go into physiology and Mrs. Tally one day said to me, have you ever thought about being a doctor? And I said, huh, that's a great idea. <laughs> so I went to state university undergrad. I was a physiology major in pre-med and along the way, I was kind of a hippie and I had a friend who was a lay midwife and I went on a bunch of deliveries with her and I thought, you know, I want to do home births and that's what I'm going to do. And then I got to Kalamazoo and did my OB rotation. And after seeing a couple of things that were kind of touch and go, I thought, no, there's no way I want to do home births. That is not going to work for me. And a lot of obstetricians were, you know, it was hard hours, not that pediatrics isn't, but it was when I got to my pediatric rotation that with Jake Weintraub, who was my mentor, then I just said, you know, this feels like home. This is where I'm supposed to be. And so that was it for me. Wow. That was a wonderful program. We're going to talk about integrating mental health into the community pediatrician's office because you have a lot of experience in that. Why is that important? How do we do it? Well, I don't think that a moment can go by now that we are not hearing about the mental health crisis. But I think for all the pediatricians that are out there listening, you know that this isn't something new. I mean, we've been challenged with kids' emotional needs and the struggles of their families for as long as we've been in practice. Back in the day, because you know, I'm older now, you know, it was before we had medications like Prozac and SSRIs, and it was mostly Ritalin and tricyclics, which I never used for anything. People were still using Haldol and, and Melaril. People may not even know what those are anymore, which is fine. But I think, you know, over the years, it just was one of those things that it 
it kept coming up. I mean, if you want to, to listen, it, people have emotional needs and it just comes part and parcel. But it became apparent to me that I needed to learn more because I just didn't have much education other than learning about ADHD. So I did lots of conferences. I did the REACH Institute program, which is fabulous. I did a lot of training with Stephen Stahl's program, the NEI Global, which was also fabulous. And, um, you know, it just got to be a passion. And one of my dear friends, Dr. Mark Sloan, was really one of the people that encouraged me the most. So it kind of fell into that. And I have a family history of a lot of mental health issues. And so I think part of that was partly a driving force. And I was particularly interested in eating disorders. And when I came to the practice, I was the only woman. So a lot of the adolescent girls came to me and it just kind of morphed from there. And if you're willing to talk about it, patients want to see you and tell their stories. I have a couple of interesting thoughts on this. First of all, Mark Sloan scared me about taking care of ADHD because when I was in Kalamazoo, he had set up a clinic and he had all these things that he did for the kids. It was one day a week. He, mm-hmm. he looked for learning disabilities, anxiety, depression. You know, they had a teacher that said all the kids that were reading and I'm like, I can't do that by myself. It's impossible. He was so great at it. I'm like, I can't do what Mark Sloan does. I'm not sure anybody can do what Mark Sloan does because Mark Sloan is brilliant and funny and creative and genius. But I learned a lot from him. I, for gosh, six months or a year, I spent a day a week with him just doing mental health care. But he was the first in our practice that was really doing mental health embedded in pediatrics. And I don't know, you know, once I had the bug, I, it just went from there and the need is huge. You know, people's, people's emotions are part and parcel of their being. And you can't, you just can't sever the two, even if you try it's there. So I think it's one of those things we just have to kind of step up. We just can't, you know, say, I I don't do mental health. Yes. I was fascinated by the way you solve the problems. So one of the solutions that you had, because it's always, the money's always important, is that you partner with Western Michigan University with their PhD in psychology, and you had some phenomenal students rotating through your office, just like medical students, and they learned development, but they also taught you on the practice about mental health and pediatrics. Can you tell us how you got around to that? That's a fascinating story. It was a fabulous solution that I cannot take ownership for. So I, full disclosure, see a therapist for anxiety disorder, and I was really having a hard time. At one point, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do behavioral health medicine. But as you said, um, just doing that only, I couldn't afford it because you just can't see enough kids if you're doing it on an RBU basis. And so I was talking with her and she said, you know, you should reach out to the psychology department and see what they, if they can help you. So I did. And Dr. Galen Alessi was the head of the clinical psychology department. And what ended up happening was I had a student, Dr. Cheryl Lazowski, who's a psychologist, PhD psychologist, and she spent about a year and a half with me. And she was getting her clinical hours and I was getting her incredible expertise. And we developed a, an actual external practicum because they needed the hours. 
And so it was kind of a, you know, I hate to use the phrase, but it works win-win. They needed what I had to offer and I needed them. And it was literally, I had someone at the hip. So, and I had over a period of time, I've had 10 students that went through and many of them are at institutions across the country and really integrated behavioral health was kind of a new thing. I learned a lot about it at Knoxville, Tennessee at Cherokee Health, where they were really kind of the leaders in doing integrated behavioral health. And so it just came to fruition. And eventually that program finished that program, but at the same time, then we brought in social workers and put them in our primary care practices, doing similar things a little bit differently, but our system was willing to pay for us to have social work. But the thing about having the doctoral students was that was free. That was free to me. So for those that are out there, if you have a university nearby, you might think about reaching out to you know, there's counseling education programs, clinical psychology, and then also departments of social work. You have to work out agreements and there's some, you know, ins and outs there, but it's important for them. And and it's something that we can learn a lot from them. I've learned a lot of strategies, particularly like CBT that, you know, I think primary care can actually do in short periods of time. Leah, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, this is all fine for academic centers, systems, big places that are funded and, you know, monies are coming from elsewhere. Most of yeah. the people that are on this webinar tonight, they're general pediatricians, just like me. They yeah. need to know how can they go about doing the right thing and make, you know, no margin, no mission. Right. You know, it's nice, but it's not so easy. So we're going we're gonna to have some panelists today. So, for example, Susan Zerota has found a solution where, for lack of a better term, the psychologists are rented or embedded into the practice, but she's not responsible for their salaries. And Scott, out in Kansas City, Kansas City, Missouri, they have three mental health providers, including a PhD in psychology. And they figured out a way of making money outside of the big health system and still doing the right thing for kids. So it's doable, not easy, but it definitely, it is doable. And I think the solution of partnering with PhD students from a big university is a win-win for society and just very elegant. I really like that. So the other thing I would just say to that, and George, I mean, I you know, I'm not in your shoes. I mean, I worked at, I was an employed hospital physician my entire career. So I, I was never a private in private practice. So I'm, I'm not the expert in that you are. What I can say is that we're not an academic center in terms of big university we were affiliated with, but you know, our university also has a large catchment area. So those folks could go out to a rural area that was, you know, within a 30 mile radius. So I think if there is a university in somewhere in your vicinity, there might be, it might be worth reaching out to. I think it's an option to consider. I never would have imagined that it could work for me. You know, I just thought I was stuck and we didn't have child psychiatry to rely on. So it was us. And when you were implementing these programs, Leah, both at the practice level and at the health system level, because for five years, you let the health systems, mental health initiatives. What were your biggest pain points? What, what was it that you had to struggle the most to get people to understand how important this is for the future of our children? 
Oh, I hate saying this. The hardest thing were the physicians. Honestly, you know, this is just something that people have a really hard time with. I think owning that mental health is our job. And, you know, whether we feel well-trained or, you know, it's not what I went into medicine for. And, and I think the ship has passed. I just don't think we can use that as an excuse that we can't do this. I think the question is, how do we do it differently? And I've been thinking a lot about it in the context of COVID. Nobody knew anything about how to do COVID. And yet we didn't say, well, I don't do COVID. I don't take care of patients with COVID. No one had training on that, but we figured it out in as the best we could. And it was a crisis, is a crisis. And I think that we can apply that to mental health. It is what is killing our kids. You know, far and away, mental health disorders are the crisis that surpasses COVID. I mean, our, you know, the second reason why kids die is suicide. The first reason is gun violence whether it's unintentional or intentional. So our work is there. I mean, the disease of the day is not infectious disease in terms of what is the killer of kids and mental health issues. If we're going to care about kids, we, we just have to figure this out. And I think the first step is just owning it and accepting it. And, and that's a hard one. And I know that there are all kinds of reasons. I think the other was the other pain point for me was leadership. Again, you know, like we don't do mental health. They do it at the hospital across town. You know, the, the hospital across town has the inpatient psychiatric unit. So we're not doing that at our hospital. But again, you, you know, the child with cancer comes to the hospital. Uh, to the hospital with their anxiety and depression. You can't say, well, yeah, we'll just send them across town for that. I think those were the, those were the two biggest challenges. And I still think it's a challenge to like, just say, this is what we need to do to respond to the needs of our children. So I'm going to just interrupt you for a minute. <clears throat> and so Kalamazoo is a small town of about a hundred thousand persons has a couple of universities. It has Western Michigan University. It now has its own medical school. And it has something called Kalamazoo College. And then it has, I think, a couple of community colleges. There's two large health systems, one called Bronson Methodist Hospital, which has a children's hospital embedded into it. And then it has another one called Borges, which is a Catholic hospital, which doesn't really provide a lot of pediatric care. And they kind of share some stuff. You know, all the high-risk pregnancies go to Bronson, but the mental health goes to Borges. But there's always some competition between those, and they both have to do so. And Borges actually did own some pediatric practices even back in the day when I was an intern. What is a great um, a great mental health program within a pediatric practice look like, Leah? Well, you know, of course, the number one thing is to have an integrated behavioral health. I mean, for me, it changed my life, that and access to psychiatry. And in the form of, I mean, ideally, I think a lot of us wish we could send every kid that has a problem that we don't feel comfortable with to the specialist. But the Child Psychiatry Access Program, MC3, is what it's called here in Michigan. They're in every state except for four that are working on theirs right now. S saved me, changed how I practice medicine because I could call and say, hey, I've got a kid who this is what's going on. This is what I've tried or should I try? And they would walk me through. They would hold my hand. They would send me documentation. 
And I could call as many times as I needed. And over time, I didn't need to call as much because I knew what to do. So having those relationships and making the effort and making the time to call those those folks. I think having screening, you know, routine screening, and we'll talk about that in a little bit for especially suicide screening, but, you know, asking about depression, asking about anxiety and having workflows that make your day not a huge mess so that you're sort of anticipating this is how, how it can go and working with your clinical staff. How do we take those calls? What do we do if a crisis calls happens? We know what to do. So at the end of the day, when a patient comes to us, the message that we convey to them is I've got this. I sure we, we talk about anxiety here. We can talk about your depression. Yes. We can talk about your suicidal ideation because I have set up a system in my practice to manage that. And when I can't, or when it's hard, you know, I have my partners to talk it over and I can call the child psychiatrist. I don't want to imply in any way that it's a perfect setup or that my day didn't get messed up, (laughs) you know, I mean, but it also would happen if I had a child that was a, a new onset diabetic or a kid that came in with a bad asthmatic episode that took extra time. So, so yeah, I could go on for a long time about what that would look like, but I think I touched on most of it. Yes. I think most, most pediatricians already figured out the screenings, the work plans, the process, how to do it. As long as they're normal, everybody's good. (laughs) But then comes the abnormal. And then what do you do with it? You know, we, we had an integrated health behavioral health program in our office where we had a social worker embedded in our office something, you know, the hospital system put her into our office. She was full immediately, 300 patients on a panel. And then they couldn't make it work. So they let it go and they shut it down. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's where we have to advocate with our payers that this is essential to our practice and to our systems. There's a lot to be said for how you set up integrated behavioral health. If it's co-located care where they're doing therapy and they have their own panel of patients, it, it, it doesn't work as effectively as if they are doing brief interventions. I can pull them in for 15, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. I go on. And so it goes throughout the day that they're being pulled in and out of rooms. That is the effective and kind of the ideal integrated behavioral health, but it takes some doing. And when we had our social workers, when they first came, we had six of them. They were assigned to 12 practices. Nobody knew what they were supposed to do. They didn't know. The docs didn't know. And so that was my job over five years was to build that program and there were lots of bumps in the road. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I mean, those social workers looked at me with big eyes, like we're going to do what? And, you know, I just sort of like said, well, we're going to, this is what our goal is. We had a, we had a grant. So we had some money we had to spend. And so we said, this is, this is what we're going to do. And, and that that's how we move forward. But, you know, doing brief interventions is very different than doing traditional therapy. And if, if you kind of go down that path, it'll eat up their time. Just like you were saying, George, they won't be able to to do the work that you need them to do. So it really is important how you set up the model. So there's great things going on across the country. And that's why we like to get together from all over the country. So for example, I just got to touch on this for a second, you and Carrie produce children that are very involved in eating disorders. And then we have Jean Marconi, who for a very long time 
was in the primary care environment, the community pediatrician, and she embedded all the psychological help, not only the social worker, but the psychiatrist to help kids. And now she's with a group called PM Pediatrics across the country, and they're offering qualified uh, therapists for quick interventions, as I understand it, to tell them that, and they're going to embed them into their urgent cares. They're in 17 states Mm -hmm. for quick interventions, if I understand the program correctly. That was also tried at Rainbow Children's in Cleveland, and that significantly decreased the cost of taking care of Medicaid patients. So there are ways of doing this with, you know, CEST and to help and not lose your shirt at it. And that's what we're here to discuss. And later we're going to discuss about suicide prevention, suicide screening, and how not to freak out when somebody says they're going to kill themselves because the standard has changed. You know, when someone told me they were going to kill themselves 20 years ago, they got admitted with a babysitter. And until psychiatry came in and said they're okay to go home, they weren't left to go home. That's changed. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Carey, the CEO of our Allied Physicians Group in Long Island, who is going to moderate our wonderful panel this afternoon. We are going to cut the track here after our interview with Dr. Gugino. In the next episode, Dr. Carey Feierstein, CEO of Allied Physicians Group in Long Island, New York, one of the largest independent pediatric groups in the country, will moderate a panel of experts. Please tune in. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Pediatric Lounge. On the show notes, you will find links to our co-host and other important notes as well as a timetable of the topics discussed today. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a great review as it helps us greatly. In the meantime, we will see you next week the Pediatric Lounge. The conversations are not intended as medical advice and the opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the guests.